everybody. This is Stephanie Rupert. Thank you for tuning in to the Naked Humanity podcast, where we take the deepest and smartest dive possible into what it means to be human. Today is episode number 39, and I have on Dr. Tasneem Hussain, who is a string theorist, so a theoretical physicist, and also an author of a fiction book, a beautiful storybook about the history and discoveries of science. So it is a massive honor to have on Dr. Hussein today. Tasneem, she is brilliant. She has a beautiful story growing up in Lahore in Pakistan and deciding, committing herself to physics and exploring the world's puzzles throughout her life and going to many different institutions around the world, working on string theory, uh, which is beautiful and complex and very theoretical and hard. <laughs> and then also always having a lifelong love of writing and communicating and talking about the ideas that she encountered in the sciences. And so she recently published a book called Only the Longest Threads, which is about the history of discoveries that led to string theory. It's about the curiosity and passion and wonder and community and humanity that goes into scientific discoveries. And I think that that's like the true beauty of Tasneem's work is how she is able to make science so human and to demonstrate to each of us that it isn't this abstract monolithic force out there in the world that gives you facts that sometimes change and shouldn't be trusted, but is rather uh, what she will later describe in the podcast, a ongoing conversation, evolving conversation with the universe and is basically just people loving and being interested in things and, and looking for answers. And I find that to just be deeply compelling and important. I think we need to be having these conversations thinking about science in ways that Tasneem is thinking about if we want to have an accurate understanding and useful understanding of science, uh, have public policy, create public policy that is sound, that is scientifically sound. And if we want to feel spiritually and or existentially whole, because science does matter. It does make a difference in how we relate to faith and religion and spirituality and, and however, whatever language we want to use, science is relevant to those things. And so this is a really important and uh, fascinating conversation. And Tasneem uh, puts things in very poetic and lovely language. So I'm very excited to share, share this interview with her, with you. A little bit about Tasneem, about her background. Of course, um, she is a Pakistani theoretical physicist and is one of the few Pakistani women to obtain a doctorate in physics, the first Pakistani woman who does string theory. As an eminent, eminent scientist, she has been a guest speaker at various schools and colleges in an effort to promote science and technology in Pakistan. Hussein has represented Pakistan at the meeting of Nobel laureates in Lindau, Germany, and led the Pakistan team to the World Year of Physics launch conference in Paris. In 2014, she released her first novel, Only the Longest Threads. I think Kirkus Reviews really nailed it when it described the novel as a fictional approach to physics that captures both the substance of the theory and the passion of its practitioners. Tasneem has also been a fellow at ICE, the Institute for Cross-Disciplinary Engagement at Dartmouth, which is where I did my undergrad, and which is also the institution that, or the institute that Marcelo Gleiser the guest that I had on for episode 15 of this podcast. It's an excellent interview. I loved the conversation. I do recommend going to listen to it. Marcelo Gleiser runs this institute at Dartmouth and is there facilitating conversations between the sciences and the humanities and all different dis disciplines to try to help us really get a grip on these our deepest, our biggest questions and problems. So I love deeply what they do there. I love deeply this conversation that I have with Tasneem. I am so excited to share it with you. You know where to get at me if you have any questions about this interview or anything else on Facebook, on Instagram, on Twitter, at Stephanie Ruper, hashtag Naked Humanity, whatever I'm there, you know how to find me. Please do email me uh, at stephanie at nakedhumanity.org if you have any questions or want to submit uh, for our book review 
our free book contest if you review the podcast. So email us there. Thank you so much for tuning in. Without further ado, here is Dr. Tasneem Hussain. Okay. Hi, welcome Tasneem. Hi, thank you so much for inviting me to be here. Yeah, I... Well, I've been talking pretty much all of my friends are tired of me talking about how excited I was about this podcast. So, um, yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. Yes. <laughs> um, so I'm, I kind of want to jump right into it and I, I, I have occasionally, uh, started these conversations talking about the weather. I'm <laughs> trying not to do that. You are though, you are in the States though, correct? You're in Eastern I am, I'm in Cambridge. Yes. Lovely. Such a great, okay. That's lovely. We can chat, about, we can chat about that later. Um, so can we, let's get started. Can you sort of just tell us what you do and why? That is, yeah, that's a very large question. So uh, well, my background is in theoretical physics. Um, mm -hmm. I, my academic background, I studied uh, physics. I did my PhD. I did my postdoc. I did research for a while um, in string theory. But I, I think as most people do who end up writing, uh, you know, people will always say, well, I've been writing since I was a child. I've, you know, I've always been writing. It was um, the same way for me. I've been writing pretty much my whole life. And um, that's something that's gone on on the side and it's, it's part of who I am. And uh, I grew up in Pakistan where um, we have the British system of education, which basically means that at some point you have to choose between the sciences and the humanities. Um, so there comes a point like right before college where you need to you know, you know, pick one stream. And at that point, um, I kind of had this reckoning with myself as, you know, where do I go? Because I'd always loved science. I'd always loved uh, literature and writing and reading. And I, and I couldn't really figure out how to do this. And um, because they both seemed like, you know, part of who I was. And I remember talking to my father about this, you know, how do I make this choice? And he said something that, you know, once in a while people say something that just really resonates and everything just becomes crystal clear in that one minute. Um, it was one of those conversations. He said, well, literature is something that you can always come back to. Um, life experience will only serve you well. You're not going to harm anything by keeping this on the side and sort of and waiting to come back to it. And that just really made sense because it seemed like um, science was something that I needed to learn formally. I needed to learn in, you know, in school in a certain way. And um, not that writing is not a craft and that you don't need to learn it. As I discovered when I set out to write a book, I was like, I, I've always been writing. I can write a book. Um, and then when you sit down to do it, you realize exactly, you know, how much you need to learn about the nuts and bolts of it. But it's still something that... Um, I think life did serve me well, you know, having those intervening years of, of experience and just having lived, there was more to see. Um, so I studied science and, you know, I was still writing and reading on the side. Uh, and then after my PhD, um, actually after I started doing research, there was just, uh, I had one of those times when I was in transition, we were moving back and forth. And so I was sort of between academic positions. And I thought, oh, you know, I've always wanted to write. Um, this would be a good time. And that's when I started writing my, my book. Um, and it just, it, it took longer than I thought it would. It ended up being more complicated than I thought it would be. Um, and I think if I'd known going into it what, uh, what an undertaking it, would, it was going to be, I don't know that I would have done it. So I'm very glad I didn't because I like Having written the book, I liked what I learned in the process. Um, but, you know, after that, I realized what a joy it was to be able to share the things that I had felt for so long and the things that had mattered to me so much. Um, and that all my friends from the humanities and, you know, people who always held themselves out as not being science people, um, I, I almost feel like uh, every once in a while you go somewhere and it's it's like a confessional. You know, you go to a dinner party or something and someone asks what you do and you say, I'm a physicist. And it's almost like some people feel compelled to confess, you know, I hated physics in high school or, you know, that yeah. was so hard or you must be so smart. Or, uh, and you think, you know, no, it's, it's just 
that it's a there's a different way of thinking about it that you perhaps were not exposed to in high school. Mm. Um, you know, if you don't think of like pulleys and levers and and equations, and you think of you know, well, I'm thinking of why the stars burn. You know, um, if there are stars, why is the entire night sky not lit up? Or if I have a magnet here, why do these violence? You know, there's no way you can not be interested in that. So a lot of times, it's the fact, it's the formalism that turns people off. And so I felt that through writing, I was able to get at those ideas and just finally share like this love and that this emotion that I had for all of these things with people who were turned off by the formalism. And that was just so rewarding and so much fun. And I think once I um, once I had a, a taste of it, I just couldn't stop. And so I kept on writing and, you know, that's just, um, I don't know that it was a conscious choice that I made, but it just so happened that, um, you know, that's the direction that I veered into more. I think it was a combination of um, things that happened in life and just, you know, how much I enjoyed this and what was possible at a certain time. So just a, a combination of things kind of steered me in this direction. So um, to answer your question in a very long-winded <laughs> way, I guess um, what I would say is that right now I'm writing, but my writing is very heavily influenced by my background in science and my love for science. Mm. So do you have a like a formal academic post or are you Not at the moment. freelance writing? Nice. No, I'm just writing. Just yeah. writing. That's, that's a good life. I am. Um... It is a good life, actually. <laughs> yes, I'm realizing. Well, I so I personally um, am currently in academia, but have for a long time known uh, that I just I think it's I think it's really important to sort of do exactly what it is that you're doing is taking these things that we learn in very formal ways in the academy and various fields in the sciences and the humanities, we learn them in very formal ways. And that creates this, this binary and these distinctions and people do have like either an aversion to or an unfamiliarity with these processes and these ideas that can actually be quite common and quite beautiful and quite fun. And so I'm, I'm really committed to uh, spending my life sort of breaking down those barriers and trying to make these, these things accessible to people. I, uh, like I said, I don't know that I would have, taken this decision sort of because there are things about academia that I miss you know there there are things about um being I think the the only thing that I would change about being a writer is that sometimes it it can be a bit lonely you know you're working on your own Mm -hmm. um and there are ways to combat that I mean you you build up writing communities and things but I think one of the things I miss most about academia is just that sense of you know you walk into a department there are people working on the same thing and you can discuss things with them and you know just that buzz of ideas um but I also realized that there are certain things about academia that are slightly limiting in the the stage that I was at you know you're on the you have to be at the tenure track there are certain things you have to do there's a publication route and, and all of those things and it doesn't leave a lot of time necessarily unless you happen to be uniquely lucky um, to do all of these other things. And, and these other things had become very important to me for exactly this reason um, that you're talking about, that, you know, it would feed part of me, but it's not necessarily giving back that much. And I just felt like the, it's, you know, it's a joy for me. I don't want to say that it's, it's this public service. It is, it is a joy. Right. But I also feel that it um, enables me to share things with others at a time when that is very much needed, because I think the public perception of science is, um, is a huge problem right now. I mean, there are so many people who are, um, you know, who will go around saying things like they are against science, or, you know, they don't believe in science. And all of these things, um, just at the juncture that we are at, and how much science matters, and how many decisions, um, you know, are, are based on it, and how consequential those decisions are, I just think that changing the public relationship with science is um, is something that re- that really matters at this point in time. Um, so it seemed like you know, well, this is something that I could do that um, that fuels me 
and is also something that I feel is, is worth doing. Um, so yeah, so that's where I ended up. I, I completely agree with you that there is a certain joy to being in the ivory tower. There's, you know, this, like you, you get to just surround yourself with these ideas, but there, at, at this point, it, it does feel a little bit like, um, like a privilege, you know, because I think the need of the moment is to, to go out and, and share more. Mm. Yeah. Privilege is, a, I hadn't thought of it in terms of that word before, but I, I think I agree with you. It does, it does feel, feel that way to me. And again, also I do really enjoy, like I said, it's a good life, <laughs> the writer's it life. Is, um, so it does serve me, but, um, yeah, I do really care about that. The other really good thing about writing is that I've always found, um, I'm interested in a lot of different ideas and I feel like this just gives me the freedom to just go out and explore anything I want. So I can talk Mm. about physics and something else at the same time. And I can just, you know, indulge my need to read about something or find out about something because it's research for a book or it's research for a project. So, you know, I can um, sort of go down these little intellectual rabbit holes and things that I find interesting and still feel like, well, I'm working. Mm. Um, so I kind of want to take a deeper dive into the ideas, right? So you're talking about the public perception of science and the ideas that you were able to communicate in your recent book, uh, about things that you love, things that you think matter. So what is it about science uh, that you think uh, should be communicated or is helpful for people to know? Uh, What is it that you find most important about it? So um, there are a couple of things. I think my, the first thing that I would, uh, that I always end up saying is just the, the basic perception, you know, how do you define science? Uh, what do you think science is? And um, I, I do a lot of writing workshops, um, some, mostly for scientists, but also for, you know, for writers who want to write about science. And one of the exercises that we do right in the beginning is we say, okay, you know, come up with your personal definition of science. Mm. And um, I find that my own working definition is um, something that I tweak a little bit. But right now where I'm at is I would say that science is, um, uh, is a transcript of our ongoing conversation with the universe. Mm. And, and the reason I think about it that way is that that's what science is, right? It's the, it's the desire to understand we're in this place. Um, we don't remember having willed ourselves here. You know, we, we wake up one day, we're born, we're here. This is this place, and, and what is it? And what are the rules here? And what is possible for us to do here? And why do things happen the way they do? And that's just, I think, um, an intellectual struggle that every human being goes through you know, in, in their own lives. You're trying to make sense of the world. And that's basically what science is, right? You're looking for that order. You're looking for... so, And it is a conversation. It's something that goes back and forth. You, you, know, you hold this question in your mind. Uh, you look at the universe a certain way. You're looking for nature to answer. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then you sort of go back and forth, back and forth. Uh, there are times you misinterpret what nature is saying. You know, as you do in any conversation with, with another person, all you know is what this person is saying. So you can, um, you, know, you can interact based on that dialogue. You don't know what's going on inside someone's head. Um, and it, I think of the universe is the same way. We don't really know, what, you know what's going on behind the scenes. We just ask a question and we hear a response and we try and interpret it and we reshape our conversation that way. Um, so it's an ongoing conversation and you know, it's a relationship that continues our whole life and we learn more things. And over the course of human history, we've reshaped so many of our conceptions because of of this back and forth. And science is just a record of that conversation. Um, It evolves. Um, And as any relationship evolves, um, understandings evolve. Um, And that's kind of what I think it is. And I think it's important to come up with how you frame science, how you think about science, because that in itself has a lot of power, how you frame things, um, you know, your, your emotional relationship to things. It affects everything that happens, um, you know, from then on. So, you know, consider just any other relationship you would have. There, there are two people, you know, right? someone happens to be 
someone that you've known for a long time and you really love. Um, they say the same thing and a stranger says the same thing. Your interpretations change, right? Your, your emotional responses change um, based on the depth of that relationship. And that's kind of what I think is going on with, with us in science. Those of us who think of science as a process of getting to know the universe, you know, it's something that we have this emotional tie with. It's something that matters to us. Um, I think you just better, um, how should I say this? You're better placed to, to respond to certain things. So for instance, one of the complaints that I, I hear a lot about people who, you know, who deny climate change or the need for vaccination or, or whatever the, you know, the case may be, is well, scientists change their mind all the time. Last year they said, this was good for us. You know, next year, this is good for us. Now they're gonna say, well, whatever it is, they'll, you know, scientists change their mind Therefore, we're not buying what you're saying. Um, and then you go back and you think, well, if, you, if you're looking at science as this like closed off thing and these people up in their ivory towers who are like handing out these decrees and it's, it's whimsical, right? It's almost like people used to think of the gods, you know, in, in olden times. It's like sometimes they do this, sometimes they do that. It's the whims and vagaries of fate. But if you think of it as, if you understand the process, if you understand what science is really doing, if you understand that, well, there are people there who are asking these questions, they're finding out new things. Every time they find out new things, they reshape, you know, everything they knew before. Um, again, like, like in any relationship, you can, you know, you can see how someone is acting and, and have a little story in your head about why they're doing it. And then every once in a while, you find out something completely surprising about their life. You know, maybe you think someone's just in a, in a bad mood every morning. And then you realize that they're going through this awful thing at home. And, and it suddenly just reframes how you think about it, right? Their, their behavior hasn't changed. But your reaction changes. The story you tell yourself about that person changes. Even though all the external facts are still what they were, just the addition of a new fact changes your relationship and your interpretation. And that's kind of what happens with science also. So it's mm -hmm. not that you're saying everything I said before was incorrect. You're just saying, I knew certain things, I painted a certain picture, I now know something else. And it changes the picture. So I just think having that kind of understanding of what science is, you know, what the process of science is, how we do it, why we change. It's not whimsical. It's just that we know more things and, and every time anyone knows more things, it, it changes your perception of, of the entire, um, the person, the relationship, the process. So that I think is one of the most important um, things to get across is the process of science. What is it that we're doing? How are we doing it? Why is it provisional? Um, and honestly, I think that more than any fact, it's that... It's that basic truth of what science is and what the process of science is, is what I would like to get across most of all. Um, because especially these days, any fact is easily accessible. You can look up anything you need to look up. So I think the, you know, the facts themselves are not the, the crucial thing. The crucial thing is getting people to a place where their emotional relationship with science is such that they're open to... Um, open to understanding different facts and that they actually want to seek them out, you know, instead of like throwing facts at people, um, make, their, make their relationship with science such that they want to seek it out. You know how when you, in a, in a new relationship, when you are really sort of in love with someone, everything about them is interesting, even trying to find out. That's kind of what I would want people to feel this is how that spark, you know, this, it's, this, it's this interesting thing. And I, and I want to know everything about how this phenomenon works or, you know, how does this happen? Just that, I think changing the feeling is a lot more important than, than informing and, um, you know, giving facts to people. Does that make any sense? Yeah, I think that that's, I think that that's really important and really beautiful. There, in, I study the relationship between religion and science in, in my work and, I find a very similar distinction that you're talking about between, you know, people use the word science and often in a very broad way, 
And sometimes they're referring to like the ideas, right? Or the facts or whatever it is that we are currently knowing about the world. Um, and sometimes they mean the methods and, and sometimes they mean the scientists. And I think it's very important to really understand the relationship between all of those things within that larger picture. Um, I, science, I think the problem is that for many people, it's, uh, it's too unfamiliar, right? Like you're saying, or it's, uh, it's scary, right? It's threatening. But I think if we make it human, which I feel is what you very much do in your book, exactly. you make science human, then it's not like this force that's out to get you. It's humans trying to make sense of things. And that's what it's always been. And I, I can find it um, almost amusing in a way that, and I know it's partly the fault of scientists. I mean, I, I do think that, you know, one should uh, own up to that. And um, and there are reasons for that. You know, there there's a lot of hoops that one has to jump through to, there are lots of rules you have to learn, a lot of symbolism, a lot of um, So I understand the need to say, you know, you don't want to, um, you don't want to oversimplify things. You don't want to make things seem so easy and so simple um, that everyone feels that, you know, just having read like one little popular book, they are able to you know, go in and, and prove Einstein wrong, which is a very popular uh, idea. <laughs> you know, someone or the other will be writing in that they proved Einstein wrong or they've come up with this new thing about quantum mechanics. And you want to say, so you want to draw this, um, it's a very fine line. You want to say, look, you can, you can play with these ideas. You can get to know them. Uh, you know, they are part of your intellectual heritage. You should own them. But before you can really go and make groundbreaking discoveries, there are other things you need to learn. Uh, and the way I like to think about it is to say, well, you know, uh, music is and should be, good music should be available for people to listen to. But just because you go and listen to the symphony play, you should be able to have that pleasure. But it doesn't mean that just having heard them play, you can then hop onto the stage and play along with them. So you need to know that distinction. You should be able to go to a museum and enjoy beautiful art, but it doesn't qualify you to then start painting something that's going to be put up on the wall the next day. Uh, so there needs to be this distinction of, you know, we can enjoy this cultural, intellectual heritage. And I do think science is a part of culture. But you have to realize that before you can contribute to it, there are, there's an entire formalism, you know, like there are years of learning how to play the piano or years of learning how to paint. And it's, it's a similar kind of thing. You can't just read a popular book and then decide that, you know, you are the next Einstein. I mean, maybe you are, but there are, there are other things that you need to learn on the way there. Um, so it is a hard line to draw, but I think sometimes we are on, on the other side. You know, we are too cautious and we draw too many boundaries um, sort of around us and, and we make it appear too mysterious and, and mystical. Um, and, and I think we sort of, um, we close it off. So the way that I like to, to think about these things is that it's hard to get people interested in something that is completely 100% abstract. Um, a lot of us scientists, I mean, we, I, I love what I do. I'm completely invested in these things. I think they're, they're beautiful. I find them aesthetically, emotionally, just fascinating, pleasing, um, whatever you want to call it. But it's because they do have this emotional um, component for me. It's not just this, it's not just this abstract thing. It's what that abstract thing denotes for me or what does it make me feel? There, there are always these associations. And I think that unless you, uh, unless you help people build those relationships and everyone will have, you know, an individual relationship with things. Um, it, it's very hard for them to understand what it is that moves you so much. And that's kind of what I wanted to do through my writing is to show the, the experience of science. So not just the facts. Um, and in fact, I was very, I was very clear about um, knowing that what I was writing was not a textbook and that it would necessarily not be exhaustive. Um, and I, I kind of wanted it that way. It was almost deliberate because I wanted to I wanted to leave people with the sense of, yes, I have a taste of it, but it's not the whole thing. 
it's not that you read this book and now you know everything from gravity to string theory. You know little bits and pieces, and if something tickles your fancy, you know, go find out more. But just this is a flavor. This is what it feels like. If you're in someone's head who loves these ideas, this is what's going on in their head. This is how they think about it. You know, this is how they start looking at the universe. And this is what it feels like. Um, and I think that's something that we don't necessarily do that often as scientists. I, and it started happening a lot more, which I love. But people are actually talking about, okay, well, this is what it is. And this is what it feels like to be me, you know, loving these ideas and, and moving through life excited by them. This is how I feel. And I think, I think everyone needs um, a, a portal of entry, you know, into an unfamiliar world. And I think that when the world is the world of the mind, and mm -hmm. since I do theoretical physics, um, where you know, almost all the action happens in the mind, um, the only way I can show someone what it is that moves me, what I feel, it's not, look, I made this really cool thing and look at what it does. Um, because mostly what I'm doing is just writing out equations on paper. So the only way I can show you what's exciting is to kind of put you in my head and say, okay, you know, look, here's what's happening in my head. And, and I just thought fiction is, is the only way I know to do that, you know, to put someone in your head and say, okay, here, this is what's happening. Um, and, and that helps people, you know, over time, if they see it, if they see it through enough different minds in enough different ways, there's so much out there. Science is not just this one thing. Scientists are not just this one type of person. Um, they're not just interested in, you know, one idea. You will have, in fact, people feuding over, you know, different ways to approach the same thing. So if you have all of that variety there and you can see um, how people interact with ideas emotionally and intellectually, if there are enough models, then almost everyone will find something or the other that resonates with them. And I think that can help change uh, their relationship with science and their perception of science. Uh, I find that I find that idea of people sort of finding a piece to resonate with um, really interesting. I have sort of tried to pay attention to people I know who are not particularly invested in the academy or in being intellectual or in science or what have you, um, and and pay attention to the way that people are interested in things. And I think something that's really important to note is that we're all interested in stuff in something, right? People are interested in something and, and maybe it's in different ways. Uh, but the ways in which people wonder and then play with that wonder are very parallel to the ways in which that happens in science. It's just in science, yes. it's, you know, it's very formalized, but you know, if you see an animal that you think is cool, you know, and you ask yourself some questions about it, or um, we're constantly hypothesizing, right? Like all day, every day saying, oh, I think that's because X, that's because Y. Uh, and that's, that's pretty much science just without the fancy instruments, you know? That's, ex that's exactly what I was trying to get at with sort of my relationship metaphor is that we're, we are always hypothesizing, you know, anyone you know, you have the story in your head about who you think they are, why they act a certain way, you know, why did they say this? But, and especially if it's, if it's someone familiar to you and they act in a way that you would not have predicted, it throws you off. It throws mm. you off pretty much, you know, and you don't use those words, but it's like saying, well, my hypothesis just got, you know, shot there like what yeah. happened here this was not part of the plan this data does not fit. and you don't use those words but basically that's what you're saying you're saying this data does not fit with the rest of my theory so now I'm going to go back and you know make a new theory that that fits with this new observation so it, it is something that's hardwired it's something we're doing all the time and just by um you know by making it seem unfamiliar we're creating this artificial distance I mean Children are born scientists. They, you know, they try things. They, um, they try, they will fail, they will try something else. They, and that's exactly what we're doing in science. You know, I'm going to try this and see what happens. If it works, I'll do it again. If it doesn't, you know, I'll change my behavior. So it is just this very instinctive thing that we've formalized. Um, you know, science is the process of making that slightly more rigorous and more formal. And so there is a structure to it. But the basic impulse is, is very natural. And it is fueled by wonder. I mean, 
all of science is fueled by, okay, why does this happen? What happens next? What's behind it? And it's always this curiosity that's, that's fueling it. And I think to take that out of it just um, almost kind of makes it soulless. You know, that's, that's the soul of science is just this, um, there's Einstein who called it a holy wonder. That's what it is. That's what it feels like. So do you, um, in this book, I think, or do you have perhaps differently now, you provide like stories or uh, snapshots or views into uh, ways in which people may have felt about these things in the past, right? Famous mm-hmm. discoveries. Um, could you maybe like take an example and explore it or perhaps even from your own life and your relationship with string theory? Like what exactly can this... Uh, can this passion or this wonder um, look like in a, in a scientific world? So it's almost always, so uh, with this uh, book that I wrote, uh, Only the Longest Threads, it was a series of um, the major discoveries or the major sort of changes in, in science that led up to string theory. And the reason I wrote it is because a lot of people asked me what string theory was, and I felt like there was this glib one-sentence, you know, thing that I could pass on. But it's not really, uh, it doesn't really explain anything for someone who generally wants to know. And there were all of these things that you needed to know along the way. And I felt like I wanted to explore each of these theories. So starting from Newton's theory of gravity, which is now 400 and some years old, um, I wanted to explore each of them as if they were still new, because I feel like we do ideas a, a huge disservice by making them seem like, you know, well, that's so old, it's been done, there's nothing there. Um, and, and I sort of wanted to go back and, and relive all of that and make it all new and interesting. And the only way to do that is, you know, hindsight can some, sometimes leave you very jaded. I wanted to go back into the mind of someone for whom this was new and fresh and, and alive. Um, so, so that kind of explains why um, all those chapters are narrated by people who were there at the time when there was some kind of groundbreaking um, theory in, in physics that kind of led up to string theory. And what I wanted to do is try and explore, and, and I made a deliberate decision to not have famous scientists there um, so all of the characters are fictional. The science is accurate, but the characters are fictional. Uh, because I also wanted to illustrate all the, the wide sort of cast of characters that goes into creating science. You know, there are people who are um, students, you know, graduate students or, or postdocs or just young people who are interested in it or someone who had a passion for science but couldn't make it a profession for one reason or the other. All of these people have the soul of scientists and they are, you know, they are scientists. That's the bulk of people who are doing science in the world. So I kind of wanted to have um, a range of personalities, a range of backgrounds. You know, they come from different walks of life. They have different experiences. And I wanted to explore every theory and show how um, people have individual relationships with it. So one of the things that I wanted to do was try and um, frame the science in, in sort of like a local language. Um, you know, things that we all understand the world given the vocabulary we have of our time and space and experience and, um, and we clothe it with those emotions. And I wanted to try and formulate every theory in those ways. So for instance, um, the one about electromagnetism is um, a student at Cambridge University in England at the turn of the century, and he's studying Maxwell's theory. And the way he frames it, he's writing a letter to his sister, who's an artist. And so a lot of the metaphors he uses are drawn you know, from that time and that place and, and art and music and things that he thinks will appeal to his sister and things that he's seeing uh, around him at the time. Maybe if I was writing about the exact same theory from, you know, a voice a hundred years later, I would use different images and different metaphors. And I wanted that to show is how each of us, even when we understand the same abstract idea, we clothe it in ways that make sense to us. And that's why it has emotional resonance with us, right? That's, that's how you own something. That's how you make it yours. 
And I just wanted to have different ways of doing that. And, and I do that for myself all the time. I mean, there every idea, and, and I sometimes change, you know, there's, I'll think of it in one way and then I'll think of it in another way. Um, and one of the fun things about writing this book was that I had to think about these things in, in ways that, in through eyes that I had not initially um, sort of perceived them as. So I, I think that the, the more the more you do that, the more you practice making these ideas your own, um, you know, the more you look for metaphors in your own life, the more these things resonate and, and you realize how they make you feel. So this is a bit of a digression, but um, these, these abstract ideas, they resonate with us or they matter to us or we decide we like them or dislike them based on our emotional association with them. Uh, one of the things that I've always found really interesting is how a, a lot of scientists, when they're you know, talking to the public, will say, well, I'm interested in this idea because it is just the most fascinating thing out there. Or, you know, I want to do this research because it is, it is uniquely fascinating. And you feel like saying, well, sure, yes, I can see that it's interesting. But if it was the only interesting thing, everyone would want to be doing this. I mean, how, how is it that people who are equally qualified and equally intelligent find all of these different things interesting? How does that happen? So there has to be something that, you know, people with the same um, intellectual training and academic training, there is still something that is different about them, right? And, and this is just my personal feeling. I think it's the emotional associations. So uh, a friend of mine who's a very talented science writer, Amanda Gefter, she was doing this interview once um, with this Russian cosmologist about the, the multiverse, uh, and he was talking about it, and, and he's a, you probably know this, but the, the multiverse is a very charged issue, right? Because it has all of these implications, and because it's still being debated right now, we don't have, um, we don't have a, a, an answer. Like, history has not yet said which side is right. So people are still free to debate. Um, and whichever side you talk to will typically make it out like theirs is the only possible intellectual position. Like, no, it's not, because there are other equally smart people arguing the opposite. So it's clearly not the only. There's obviously something other than smarts going on here. And what's going on is, is emotion and, and how you respond to that idea and what it makes you feel. And your basic belief of, you know, do I think the universe functions this way or not? I mean, that's, that's what's at stake. So anyway, this cosmologist that uh, my friend Amanda was interviewing uh, was um, you know, a huge believer in the, in the multiverse. And she was talking to him, it was a long interview, and he, at some point he said something about, he'd grown up in, in Russia. And he said, you know, in Russia, we just had one choice of cheese. And it was just in passing. But she and I were talking about this afterwards. And she said, you know, I couldn't help but wonder whether this multiverse, so he didn't say this, this is, this is us. Um, but she was saying, I couldn't help but wonder if, the fact that he just had that one choice, you know, that, that lack of choice in, in formative years was what made the idea of the multiverse so appealing to him. Because here, suddenly you have infinite choices. And, you know, there, there are other people who respond completely differently where they think, well, all of this choice makes everything insignificant. You know, it doesn't even matter anymore because anything I can do, something else is happening and, you know, it's basically then how do I matter? How do my choices matter? So there is this emotional relationship with ideas and you know how they make you feel and what the implications are for you um, that, that I think dictates your, even your intellectual response to ideas. It dictates what you would want to get involved with. How much time do you want to spend you know, arguing this case? Because it matters to you. Why does it matter to you? There's almost always some some emotion at the back of it, um, and I I think that you know I, I I want it to be very clear that I do think that people who are doing these things are intellectually being honest. So it's not like they're going to change the the math of it or they're not. But this is what dictates why they are doing what they're doing. 
what they're doing is is a much more rigorous, you know, intellectually demanding thing. It's it's held to a lot of different standards. Um, there's a lot of you know this this craft, and there's a lot of other things that come into it. It's not that they're making up facts as they go along, but there's something that dictates why they're there in the first place. Yeah, there's um, you know, you described science as being this ongoing conversation or this relationship with the universe and what exists is like, it's obviously, it obviously matters to us, right? What exists and how it presents itself to us and how we make sense of it. And so, you know, we have this idea that science and religion are deeply opposed or these two very distinct phenomena. And in some ways they are, and it's very complicated and I could write a book on it and I probably will, but (laughs) (laughs) I probably will. Um, my dissertation, I guess is on it, but, um, but it's, I sort of, I talk about science as it's not religion and it won't ever be religion, but it does have an, what I call an existential power. I think precisely because we care we care about what exists, you know, and, and we, and we care and science really does inform the way we make sense of things. I love that thing that you said about the cheese. And I have read your, some of your articles on various ideas in, in physics and theoretical physics and how debates are sort of taking shape. And I think that our desire to make sense of things in a like deeply existential or spiritual way, I think is definitely at the heart of that. And you're right. Like the intellectual rigor is still there, but we're all, in the, at the end, you know, motivated by things that are like very deeply rooted in our humanity. Of course. I mean, that's why we're doing it in the first place is because it matters. If it didn't matter, you know, why would anyone put in all of this effort? And, um, and I do think that the, the science and religion come from the same basic motivation. There's what am I doing here? Mm-hmm. You know, what is this world? What, what am I doing here? How do I make sense of it? Why are things happening the way they're happening? Um, and, and science is this move to try and say, okay, well, let me quantify certain things. Let me make certain things predictable. You know, let me, um, there's a cause and effect. There's what do I have control over? And religion takes the same questions or or the similar basic sort of question and it answers it in a completely different way. So you have, uh, you know, science will tell you what happens, not necessarily why it happens. And religion tries to give you this, you know, this, well, here's why it's happening or here's what it means for this to happen. Or, you know, this is this sort of larger scheme um, that you can place yourself in. But both of them are that. Science is this, you know, this more um, quantifiable, predictable, sort of um, tangible thing that that other people can verify, that is external to you, that you can Mm -hmm. agree on. And... What, you know, whether it's religion or any kind of spiritual uh, experience, any internal change, it's, um, this is a debate that I'm sure, you know, has been, you know, is going on a lot and is very, uh, people are very vocal on both sides. Mm-hmm. What I'm finding particularly interesting um, is the work of a lot of people who are stepping up to say, look, we're atheists, but um, we don't think that science can disprove religion Mm. because it's just a fundamentally different endeavor. You cannot disprove the, you know, the existence of God. It's an axiom. There there is no logical system that can disprove an axiom. It's something you start with. Mm. Um, And and I think that the the work of Goodell comes to mind is, you know, in any logical system, there are limits. You cannot prove the axiom within that logical system. You have to step beyond it. Um, So it's just, it's a different thing. You can partake of it or not. It can serve you or not. You know, you could be uh, motivated by it or not, but you can't stand there and say, I have disproved something that is not within that that system. Um, And so I think in a a certain way, those um, arguments are completely at odds with each other. They're just... They're different spheres of existence and, um, and people who are not religious, people who do not believe in God, uh, they still have something that fuels that same basic desire to make sense of the universe. 
um, you know, a lot of them will say, well, I don't believe in God, but I believe in, you know, in humanity. I believe in doing these things for humanitarian reasons. And it serves a similar purpose. You're, you're almost always seeing that there is something bigger than me out there that I am a part of, and here's how I want to connect to it. So you're choosing those ways, you know, you have different vocabularies, you have different reasons, um, but it's just, it's not something that you can sort of throw at each other and say that science will either prove or disprove God, or, you know, you can get any of the holy books. I mean, you cannot look at them as scientific texts, um, you know, so, which is where a lot of that conflict comes in, is where you're trying to take those two things and sort of you know, make them one. They're not, they're, their methods are different. Religion mm -hmm. is not externally verifiable. Any epiphany that you have, anything that changes you from the inside is not something that you can take outside and put in a lab and get other people to verify. It is, you know, the, the whole process, like the technology is different. Um, so it's just, uh, but, but the basic quest is the same. You're trying to make sense of where you are, what is possible here, what it means to be here, what you can do, you know, how do you, how do you have any measure of control over anything, you know, externally, internally. Um, it's all a process of getting to know yourself and getting to know the world around you. Hmm. Yeah, I think, you know, you mentioned how people are, scientists are saying, look, I'm an atheist, but, you know, I'm not here to destroy religion. I think that that's incredibly important. We're talking, when we have been talking about the public understanding of science, a big piece of the reason people are averse to science, I think, is because, you know, you, you associate it with something that's trying to take your religion away. Um, and so I think we need to, like, really come to a place of mutual understanding and to be having these conversations and to try and make everybody as safe, everybody feel safe while at the same time, like exercise intellectual and scientific rigor when we talk about the nature of the world. Um, I think that that's really important. It's, it's quite interesting. I was reading a lot about, uh, you know, why, for instance, people deny climate change. And um, in a lot of the writing workshops that I was doing, we were trying to talk about how do we address people who just flat out deny facts. And there's so much that research that's been done about the fact that it's not that intellectually they do not understand what you're saying. It's that what you're saying has implications for them, has emotional implications, and they're just like their identity feels like it's under attack. Mm -hmm. And they just, they shut down. So their brain is just not working in the same way anymore. Because, you know, if anyone feels attacked and if you tell someone, well, you're ridiculously stupid for not understanding this, you know, that's not the best frame of mind for them to be in to no. then have a conversation. Exactly. Um, and then, and there's a lot of work that's actually been done about this is if you try and engage people, you know, instead of attacking them, if you try and engage them, if you try and engage them emotionally, if you try and show them what's at stake here without threatening them, they're a lot more, they're, they're sort of able to go to this mental place where they're slightly more relaxed and then they're able to accept what you're saying to them, you know, instead of taking it as, as a personal attack. And I think a lot of our dialogue needs to be reframed that way. And instead of scientists calling, you know, people who, who have certain beliefs or certain um, values or whatever it is. So in a, in a less charged context, I guess, could be, uh, you know, people who are anti-vaxxers. So it's one thing to say, well, that is just unbelievably stupid. How could you do that? If you understand that it's actually it's still coming from concern about their children. Mm -hmm. And if you try and engage that emotion, you know, and then you show how, well, yes, I understand your concern about you not wanting your child to end up with this awful disease, but look at the chances of that happening and, you know, look at the flip side. If you try to argue it that way and you present it in, you know, in this, in this non-threatening way where you're meeting people halfway and you're saying, okay, I understand your concern. You're worried about your child. This is about your child. It is about the welfare of your child. But, you know, look at this. I mean, there's like whatever that, I, I don't know the numbers offhand, but there's a, you know, one in a thousand chance that this might happen, even though, you know, we could show you all the reasons why it won't. And then there's like a one in five chance that the other thing will happen. 
well, what would you do? You know, you, you try and formulate it that way instead of saying, well, you're just completely ridiculous. I don't understand what you're doing. Here are all the numbers. What is wrong with you? Um, you know, that's, that's the way to have a, an engaged dialogue. And you do turn people away even before they've, um, you've had a chance for them to, to listen. Yeah. And in fact, there's, um, there's a beautiful book that just came out by Alan Lightman. Um, I don't know if you, do you know him? So he's one of the, the people who sort of started this science and writing thing. He's a physicist who, um, mm-hmm. he was a, you know who he is? If he had a joint appointment in the humanities and physics at MIT, I think he's the first person to do that. And he has um, beautiful books that he's written. I'm, I'm a huge fan. But his latest one is called Searching for Stars on an Island in Maine. And he's talking of exactly the same kind of thing where he says, you know, science can be a source of profound spirituality. And it's not, you know, it's not religion in that formal sense. But all of us have had some kind of, you know, transcendental experience where as scientists, suddenly you feel like you're part of something much bigger than you, which was always what was the religious feeling, right? That's, that's what it was. Um, and he says, I don't know what it is. I don't know how to understand it. I could not replicate it. Um, I couldn't study it a certain way, but it is also part of being human. And so I think there's just this recognition of, um, you know, there, there are different ways of knowing things. And we have to let people, as long as they're not hurting anyone. So there, there are things that it is not okay to do just because it's just morally, you know, hurtful. So there are certain things which if you're doing in the name of religion, that is a problem. Not because, you know, religion is a problem, but because that act is something that is hurting other people. And that is a problem. Um, but as far as personal beliefs go and this desire to sort of make everyone give up you know, certain personal beliefs, that I don't think is a, is a battle that anyone has the right to fight. Mm. It's just something that one should not be criticizing. You know, if you, if you focus on changing certain destructive behaviors that are harming culture as a whole, that's one thing. But if you then push past that and say, okay, now change everything you believe, because what you believe is just wrong, there's, you know, then, then you're working yourself into a, the corner over there and you're harming um, the thing that you started out. Mm. That's so nice. And I want to keep chatting about it, but time goes really quick and we're actually running out of it. I'm so, uh, before we go, uh, mm-hmm. is, is there anything left that uh, you felt that you wanted to say, or do you have any parting words of wisdom? Um, what do you think? Hmm. Um, this, this was a really fun conversation and I had no idea that time was going this fast and I could also <laughs> keep talking forever. Um, but I don't know about parting words of wisdom as such, but I do think that it's very important for us to share our stories, for all of us to share our stories. And I think mm-hmm. that's, that's something that we're realizing in so many different ways, um, you know, politically. There, there's all of this talk about representation, about all of these voices that we don't hear from. And, and you realize how hearing people's stories and just, you know, just reading books about people who, you know, you have not traditionally seen books written about or in cultures or watching movies um, about, you know, cultures and places and people that you did not traditionally see, how all of that shapes your, your understanding of people who you would otherwise conceive of as, you know, the other. Um, they're only the other because you don't know them, because you put them as this sort of nameless, shapeless thing on the side that that is different and therefore threatening. Um, But anyone that you engage with on a human level, you know, anytime you see, well, this is not just this immigrant who is here to threaten everything. It's just this person with a child who is looking for a better life because they're coming from something very different. Or, you know, this is not someone who eats something that I find unpalatable. It's, it's a, you know, it's a different community. They have, but their, their relationships are the same. The human emotions are the same. What they want for their children is the same. The way they love their parents is the same. When you see those stories play out, you start relating in different ways. And I think that's something that's happening in culture. 
And I think that's something that is very important for us um, you know, to see people represented, to hear stories and to, to see stories from people from different religions, different cultures, different countries, and different belief systems and different professions. Um, and I think it's, it's the same kind of thing at play is that when you see someone from the inside, when you look at them as human beings, things that matter to them start mattering to you. And you just sort of widen your circle of people who you consider people like you. So the enemy kind of starts retreating and you realize that there is no real enemy here. It's just you know, people trying to live out their lives the best way they can, but all of them have the same, you know, same motivations, the same heart, the same struggles. And I just think that you know, as, as the world becomes more and more connected and things we do impact each other so deeply, I think we really need to reach that understanding. And I think telling our stories is the best way to do it. Wherever we're coming from, whatever our beliefs, um, I think just sharing them and bringing them out in the open is just, is the best way to do it. That's really beautiful. Uh, thank you. Thank you a lot for sharing that. And for all of the things that you've shared um, today, for people listening, I will share a link to Tasneem's website and also uh, her book, so you can read it because it's fantastic and learn about, learn about her story. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah. So thank you again. I will provide the links to those, uh, to those things. And uh, thank you, Tasneem. This has been really wonderful. Thank you very much. I, I really have fun. All right. Sure. Um, take care. And to everybody listening, you take care. I will uh, talk to you soon.